call. I would ask you, hi, how are you? But I feel like it's apparent how you are. Uh, yeah, it is, isn't it? <laughs> Why don't you go ahead and tell the listeners who maybe can't see you and for whom your coughs will probably be edited out? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure. Um, well, I look beautiful. Duh. I'm still sick. I'm recovering from the sickness. I get this biannual, uh, this, this, uh, bisexual cold. No, no, I get this semi-sexual, this semi, semi-annual <laughs> cold. I think that's what's happening. Got it. So that's fine and dandy. So you're sick. Grunge Girl is still making her movie. Grunge Girl is not taking care of me. I'm just a little baby in bed. No one's taking care of me. Oh my God. How do you live? I don't know. I don't know. So I'm just, I just want love. Give me well, love. I only have the sweet, sweet ministrations of my Talmud to offer you. Not really any actual health care. Tell us how you are. Uh, how am I? Baruch Hashem, I'm well. I am really excited about this episode today because I think it's about a lot of really cool stuff. I have, for the first time, taken a trip to the comic shop in my neighborhood and started buying comics again, which is really fun because, I don't know, Comics are just cool. I'm a big fan of the X-Men universe. I think we're actually going to do an episode about it later this year, like in September or something. But for those of you who don't know, X-Men is in sort of like a golden era right now in terms of its comics writing. Because it's really gone up and down in terms of quality throughout the years. And it's been down for a long time, for like a decade. But recently, like in 2019, there was a relaunch of the line and it's really gone up in quality. I mean, there's a lot to say about how X-Men and comics in general are basically like the Talmud, but we'll save that, I guess, for the comics episode. Okay, wow. Uh, yeah, I don't know anything about comics. I mean, I think like the most quick and salient thing I can impart now that I think is very Talmudic is like in comics, there's sort of this pre-existing set of characters and material and different authors are picking them up over time right because the authors of comics are always changing so you know in the 60s some characters were created and then their histories were developed and then in the 80s different writers pick them up and change those histories and then the writers in the 90s have to deal with that and then the writers you know every decade every new set of writers sort of has to play with the material left for them oh, okay. okay by people before which I think it's obvious how that is a little bit Talmudic. Okay, cool. Neat, 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 neat. But yeah, otherwise I'm good. You know, just learning how to be a good little housewife and make my boyfriend all of his food for his work. I'm angling for the same role. Yeah, it's a good one. It's so TBH. good. You know how some people don't like it when gay people get married? Mm-hmm. I have a similar intense feeling about career-oriented people. <laughs> Like people who are really motivated by work and ambition. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Those people should not be allowed to marry each other. That's 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 gay in the bad yeah. way. There should not be two girl bosses together. No, 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 no. Someone out there needs a girl boss to take care of them. Right, right. Like you, yeah. for instance. I need a girl boss to take care you of You need me. like a team of round-the-clock girl bosses. Well, maybe that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but... Maybe well, it you also wouldn't mind. No, that'd be great. No, <laughs> I would love that. Well, yeah, I mean, I get that. I feel like and I'm in a kind of funny role because, you know, I'm always fond of saying um, 
God sort of cursed me with an excess of girl boss energy and my life is about figuring out how to use it for good. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, yep. So I feel like I'm the girl boss, but instead I'm sort of like in the homemaker role. So I have to like find a way to balance my girl boss energy with my non-ambitious lifestyle. Ambitious in terms of Talmud, but not really in terms of like being the boss in the boardroom. Yeah, yeah, you're an interesting combo platter for sure. But I I take you with a side of rice. You're so sweet. Well, we better talk about some Talmud before we get too wild. About two weeks ago, we did a little episode about labor rights. So I wanted to do another episode about even more labor rights because I think labor in the Talmud is a really interesting subject. Our basic text today is going to take us to Bava Batra 8b. We've discussed a little bit before, but Bava Batra is a part of a three-part Masechet, which sort of has to do with civil cases and torts and property law and stuff like that. Really broad-ranging stuff gets covered in these Masechets. Here is our sort of basic chunk that we're going to be learning from today. Wurashin b'nei ha'ia lehatnot al hamidot al hasha'arim it is allowed for the residents of the city, literally the children, the sons of the city, to set the measures and the prices and the wages paid to its workers and to fine people for violating these. Oh. Already, you know, pretty interesting. Already not something we have in our world. Just to get into a break down some etymologically interesting words before we get too much into the content, the word used here for permitted is rashin, which comes from the same word as rosh, which in Hebrew means head. That word rosh can mean head both in the sense of the part of your body and also in the sense of like the head of an organization, mm-hmm. uh, the highest authority. So in here, it's like, you know, you're being given the head space to make these declarations. Just interesting connection between those two roots. And then the other etymologically interesting word is the one we have for the prices, which is the shi'arim, which comes from the same word as shior, which if you've ever been in a Talmud class before, you know shior is the part of class where everyone comes together and discusses. Usually people think of it as the lecture part of the class. It's not quite clear to me how this word, which has to do with measures and amounts, came to mean the lecture portion of a Talmud class. I think there's a little bit of a folk etymology you can massage out of it, but just a fun, fun little etymological mystery. If I can restate it colloquially. Mm -hmm, Please do. Maybe in a way that doesn't capture everything, but besides the wages, they can set the weights and the measures. Mm -hmm, Exactly. Setting wages, that is something that makes sense intuitively to me. There's some sort of community-based way of uh, uh, figuring out how assets are distributed in society. That's all well and good. But what does it mean to set weights and measures? And I have a barking skeeter. I'm sorry. I think we actually do sort of have this piece about setting weights and measures. We have a similar setup in our society, at least the way it was explained to me when I was in high school, you know, and I was asking, like, how do we know what a meter is? You know, like, who decided what a meter is? And the way it was explained to me is that somewhere in the world, there is a stick, a a measure that is sort of the definition of a meter. And there's, I forget what these are called. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. In the United States, 
States, the government has the power to fix the standard weights and measurements. But yeah, I mean, somewhere out there, there's a governing body, right, that decides what is a gram. This is a crazy, like, psychedelic Talmud connection, but there's this issue where people don't want it, so it's all based off of, like, a stick that exists somewhere that are not based on a specific object, but just based on a theoretical length defined by like the radius of a sphere composed of like whatever like instead of a meter is the length of this stick Mm -hmm. a meter is the length of blank billion atoms stacked up the length of this theoretical object defined in this very particular way right so it's this indirect way of defining the thing and that makes it so it will never change right by making it exact but also not exact it's the way Mm -hmm. like that they're able to somehow hold on to like that concept and it reminds me a lot about like reading the jastro for some reason how do we know that this word means what mr jastro says that it means you know right it's all this like self-referential game and then my head explodes and then i feel like i'm living in a postmodern hellscape anyway there you go in talmud times it's easy to see the connection right i've seen in a couple different sugyas, for instance, dealing with how long is a tefach. So a tefach is this measurement that comes up a ton, especially in the part of Dafyomi we're in right now. Usually it's translated as a hand's breadth. And there was just something a couple pages ago on, on Dafyomi where we heard a story about there was this town where a halachic precedent was set. And it's because they had a special person with an especially like wide hand or something that sort of set their tefach and that's why they did things a little bit differently oh whoa so this is the kind of thing i think it's talking about is like let's say i paid you for a tefach of cloth and you gave it to me and i said it's not a tefach theoretically there might be someone provided for by this legal system who we could go to who would say yes it's a tefach or no it's not a tefach that's wild it's like the same problem I guess we have. You know what's weird? You know, you know what's like freshman roommate <laughs> weird, Hava? What, Michael? No one can agree on what a tefach or a foot or a meter is. Mm-hmm. But we can all agree that length is definitely a thing that is a property that exists. Right. We're all on the same page about this property. <laughs> our, our basis for talking about it, we're having issues. Right. There's some kind of spiritual metaphor Yeah, I don't know what that's about. We have a little more to cover. Well, we have a lot more to cover, actually. I promised on on Twitter that this episode was going to be at least partially about ancient unions. What we have so far is not quite a union, right? It's sort of like a centrally planned Department of Labor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which is maybe one ingredient in a union system, but not an ancient union itself. So I'm going to bring this quote from this piece called Labor Rights in the Jewish Tradition by Michael S. Perry, which you can find really easily if you Google it. You can find this article or chapter. I'm not quite sure which one it is, but it's great. We have this quote commenting on this piece that I've just read you all that says, The commentators understood... That in the words of the Rashba, who I'll tell you about in a second, every association organized for one purpose is to be considered as a city, even if the members of the community are not party to their decisions. So if you recall in our sugyo, we said it is the sons of the city, the citizens of the city who are given this power in the Talmud. Mm -hmm. So the Rashba is saying every association organized for one purpose is considered a city. 
by that definition. Even if only members of one occupation, like merchants, butchers, or sailors, make regulation and articles of association, their decisions are binding. Thus, the Tosefta comments, the wool weavers and dyers have the power to say, any order which comes to town, all of us will share in it. The bakers have the right to make agreement on weights and measures amongst themselves. The shipmasters have the right to declare, whosoever ship is lost, we shall provide him another ship. Okay, okay. So an acute little linguistic trickery going on here. Mm-hmm. Rashba, who is this person, Shlomo bin Avraham ibn Adret, is this dude who was around from 1235 to 1310, medieval rabbi halachist and Talmudist. And so Rashba is an acronym for Rabbi Shlomo bin Avraham. He was mostly hanging around Spain for a while. He was considered the rabbi of Spain, famously. And we have a lot of commentary held in very high regard from him. So he sort of came along in the medieval era to clarify this term city. We have basically, at least from medieval period, maybe from earlier, a sort of instantiation of the basic idea of a union in Talmudic law, which is pretty cool. Something that occurred to me, a sort of literal shower thought I had today was like, probably in this time, the rabbis didn't have that much economic legislative power. So it was probably easy for them to be magnanimous about labor rights because they didn't have any exploitative power over labor to begin with. So there wasn't much for them to legislate away. It's a little unclear where their material incentives lied. I mean, it's unclear to me. I'm sure there's people out there who know more. <laughs> right. It's clear to someone, just not us in this moment. We've already talked about how, like, the Tanaitic rabbis who were redacting the Mishnah, they were more on the prosperous side of the scale. Mm -hmm. But I've intuited, I have nothing to cite, but I feel like I've heard that a lot of them had jobs. Yes, it's, they definitely, the majority of the rabbis of this time period had professions. Regardless of whether they were rich or not, almost certainly they didn't have the legislative power to decide how weights and measures were set within a city. That's like a whole other order of political power. So it's quite easy to be magnanimous. And sometimes I wonder, I don't know much about the labor politics of, you know, the Roman government, the colonial government in this time. But I wonder if sometimes the Talmud creates this utopian vision of labor sort of in opposition to the Roman government to say like, oh, like, look, if only we were in charge, this is how good it would be. It's weird. But then I get confused because like when I project into the past and imagine what Jews are like, right, what I'm basing it off of is like Tevya. And I imagine Jews working <laughs> for other Jews and only interacting with Jews. And, you know, I, right. I understand that that's not realistic, but it's hard to wrap my mind around what, like, the relationship really was. Some historian can come correct me on this, but I think when we think of Tevya in the shtetl, Jews in the Pale of Settlement were actually much more cordoned off than probably Jews of Talmudic times were. We are going to talk about with Sam eventually. We'll probably discuss how Ashkenazi Jews were way more confined to hanging out with just each other than, than Sephardic Jews. Right. I'm going to bring a piece of Gentile labor law, because listeners, I haven't told you this, but I've told Michael that part of my 
resolution for the show is to bring a lot more comparative history. So I've brought in a, another little element of this really crazy thing I discovered that I think is really relevant to our time. And maybe you've heard of it, but it's called the Ordinance of Laborers 1349. It's often considered to be the start of English labor law. And it was issued in response to the outbreak of the Black Death in England. So first, I'm just going to read us a quote. This is just the first paragraph of this ordinance. And then we'll talk about its relevance to our times and to the Talmud. To the King Sheriff of Kent. Greeting. Because a great part of the people, and especially of workmen and servants, late died of the pestilence, many, seeing the necessity of masters and a great scarcity of servants, will not serve unless they may receive excessive wages, and some rather willing to beg in idleness than labor to get their living. We, considering the grievous incommodities which of the lack especially of plowmen and such laborers may hereafter come, have upon deliberation and treaty with the prelates and the nobles and learned men assisting us of their mutual counsel ordained. That was, to me, just as confusing as a, as a paragraph of Talmudic Hebrew. But essentially, what had happened is that the Black Death came to England and, you know, an enormous amount of people died. 30 to 40 percent of the population. After that happened, laborers, especially farm workers, would not work except for higher wages than they would have received before the Black Death. And Ooh. because this was supposedly, we can talk about whether this actually translated to inflation or whether that's just a narrative that serves power, but because it's supposedly translated to inflation, the king, King Edward III, created this ordinance, which some of its main things it legislated was that everyone under 60 must work, employers must not hire excess workers, employers may not pay, and workers may not receive wages higher than pre-plague levels, food prices were fixed, and giving money to beggars was an imprisonable offense. Basically, this ordinance came along after a bunch of people died in the plague to fix the prices of consumer goods, artificially lower wages even though demand for labor was incredibly high, and to make, quote, idleness a criminal offense in a way it hadn't been before. It might be obvious or it might not be, but the reason that this was so fascinating to me is because it's so similar to the situation we're in now. And the rhetoric that we're seeing about people who are just being, quote, lazy and staying on unemployment after the coronavirus, and the way, you know, employers are complaining about wages rising. I don't know the statistics of how much wages are actually rising, but anecdotally, it seems like people who I know see wages rising in their industries. Well, I mean, that's good. It's good. I wonder if we'll see a repeat, right, of the Ordinance of Laborers 1349. It was not super effective. There were a couple later pieces of legislation that were passed to try and reinforce this. But I guess one reason I wanted to bring it up is to compare and contrast, right? This is the monarchy fixing prices for the purpose of artificially keeping wages low. Whereas in our Talmudic Sugyo, we had sort of union price fixing. Mm -hmm. And not only are we contrasting it to the Talmudic past, but we're contrasting it to the present where we've just sort of come through slash are in the middle of the corona plague. And I guess we're seeing three different 
approaches to this kind of stuff, all of which we are the inheritors for. Yeah, that's true. That's true. The Rashba commentary that you read is around the same time period as the ordinance of laborers that you brought up. We're talking right. 1200s, 1300s. Hava, I'm getting a little suspicious here. I'm feeling okay. like you're cherry picking socialists, you know, workers should own the means of production kind of stuff <laughs> that's Jewish. I sense there's some agenda here. Well, we all have agendas, first of all. Okay, okay. That is a deflection. <laughs> well, I'm allowed to deflect when I'm being attacked. I'm just asking questions. Part of the reason I say there's always an agenda is because we have to cherry pick when we read from the Talmud, right? I could not just sit here and read to you every instance of mention of labor in the Talmud. That would be a multi-year-long recording. To make my agenda clear, one thing I kind of wanted to, to bring out on this show, I guess, is that, you know, I've seen plenty of, especially Jewish people who are part of the establishment, taking part in this rhetoric about lazy people being on unemployment. Part of what I was trying to clarify by drawing a line between these three moments in history is there is at least one pretty authoritative example saying to me that it is not the Jewish way for us to be taking part in that kind of rhetoric. And I don't think any of us can ever unilaterally say yeah. something is or isn't the Jewish way. Right, 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 right. But there's a couple of things I want when I cherry pick texts like this. One of these is for myself and for anyone else who wants it to sort of have the tools of history and text to defend their own beliefs on an explicitly Jewish basis. I want to build those tools for myself. So here I'm building for myself a defense of the idea of unions and contrasting the Jewish approach to the historical European approach. And I also just think that on a metaphysical and a practical level, we dig up these little pieces of liberatory Talmud because the process of studying them makes it more likely that we will choose more liberatory ways of being in the present and into the future. This kind of meta question is one that, you know, the past two years almost now I've been grappling with. This game can be played by anyone with any agenda. Mm -hmm. That's a challenge for me to uh, know what to do with that. Part of me thinks that because there is no Jewish way of doing anything, that like all there is is just argument and politics. And like, is your ideology compelling enough based on the source material, you know? And does it convince people? It's like followers on Twitter. It's like how many plays you get on Spotify. I mean, I hear what you're saying, but I think to me... I would say it's less about sort of a zero-sum game of, like, garnering the most people to support your ideology. And it's more, to me, about the trajectory of Judaism. To me, Judaism is this sort of large, organic field of people and ideas and theologies. And the way that we relate to those ideas, the ones that we choose to pay attention to, determines the direction that field will move. The reason that I choose to try and engage in that field, engage in that argumentation that you're talking about, is not to sort of like win the most followers in my Hungry Hungry Hippos game, but <laughs> rather because I think even though I'm only an incredibly small part of that system, I feel I have to do my part to compel it to 
move in the direction that I think leads towards greater liberation. This reminds me of like the meter question, which comes first, where you want to pull it or what you're pulling. Right, right. I mean, I think this is has become a more common ideology, I think, ever since the 70s sci-fi writers explored it really thoroughly. But I've sort of accepted the idea that the means are the end and that the way in which I pull it is inextricable from the direction in which I'm trying to pull it. Welcome to Hi, How Are You, where <laughs> means are ends. Deal with it. I think it's an understandable impulse because Talmud and our podcast are such an argumentative activity that sort of uses the tools of logic. It's tempting to think of them exclusively in that terms, but this might sound like an equivocation, but to me it is not just a logical field of experience. It's also a mystical one. Yeah, I I think if you can argue logically about hypothetical situations that don't exist, that means you have an imagination. You can imagine alternate futures you're pulling it's related to the pulling Mm -hmm. right exactly and our understanding of the past influences what we're able to imagine it influences the directions we're even able to think of going yes we are all like ouroboruses (laughs) right i mean to me i think it's less like an ouroboros and more that i think everything exists all in a single great present so there is no snake to be eating its own tail. But this is we're getting off into a whole other thing. It's okay. To me, it's like I'm going down on a hungry, hungry hippo, and the hungry, hungry hippo is also <laughs> going down on me. And it's like... Right. Lucky for you. I know. Gobble, gobble. Yeah. I mean, I think... Yeah. Do you have more, Hava? I'm curious. No, we've covered pretty much everything I wanted to cover. I wanted to talk about the Ordinance of Laborers. I wanted to talk about the Rashpa, Ancient Unions... The similarities between the Black Plague and the labor virus, the labor virus, the coronavirus, you know, every what we're learning is every virus is a labor virus. The labor virus is what God gave Adam and Eve. (laughs) Oh, yeah, absolutely. (sighs) Well, I think that is a damn good episode. I hope so. And... I thank you all for joining us on this magical mystery tour through quote time and quote space. Hit us up, send us your questions. Yeah. Please tell all your friends about the podcast and tweet about it and say nice things about us. Yep. Also, you can ask us questions on the Talmud hotline, which is in the description, or send us an email at you at gmail.com. Uh, a listener question coming up next week, right? Yeah, we're going to do a listener question about high holiday stuff next week. It's going to be great. If you want to get twice as many episodes for twice the goodness, then become a patron and you will get your wish. Okay, I think that is just about as good as we can do it. So Shavuot Tov, everyone. Shavuot Tov. Shavuot Tov.